I'd like to ask you now to turn in your New Testaments to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And as you're turning, may I say that um, it's really kind of amazing how we can hear this word this morning, this record of Jesus' words, and through preaching, be transported back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, right there and encounter Christ together from 21st century um, Mississippi. And so may the Lord give us that real sense of God and his word and his presence in our lives. These are the very words of God to you and to me. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. But you truly teach the way of God. So, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, then render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, and unto God that which belongs to God. And they marveled at him. Valid question. Wrong kingdom. Valid question. Wrong kingdom. You know, this summer, the entire summer, we're going to be in that final, we are in that final week in Jerusalem. A third of the book of Mark is just that last week that will lead to the cross and the the empty tomb. And there's a lot of confrontation and trying to discredit Jesus during that week that he is in Jerusalem for the week of Passover that began with his triumphal entry. And so the, the greatest, most noteworthy leaders in Israel, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they are plotting and they're going to send out three, almost like sorties. You know how you send out fighter jets to, to bomb places? Three sorties of questions, three different times. This is the first of the questions where they are trying to discredit Jesus before the crowd. I mean, if you're going to crucify him, you, you need to divide people in their opinion about Jesus. And nothing quite divides people like politics. And the question that they are asking today is a hotly debated political question. And Jesus gives a very God-centered theological answer to this political question. We begin in verse 13, and they sent to him 
some of the Pharisees, and are y'all ready for this? See, you don't quite know yet why this is so important. Isn't, that, isn't it great? You get to learn why this is important. The Pharisees, we know about them. They sent out to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Man, you know something's going on when the Pharisees and the Herodians are all on the same team. So, who are the Herodians? Uh, the root word of Herodians is the word Herod. And the Herods had been kings over Israel in what was called the Hasmonean dynasty. Since the Maccabees kicked the Syrians out of Israel, the Romans retained the Herods as kind of a puppet king over Israel. And the Herodians were a party, a group of people, an identified group of people who utterly cooperated with the Herods, with the Romans. The Herods, including the Herod that was on the, the uh, throne uh, during this time, they, they were not Jewish. They were kind of partly Jewish, but they were Idumean. So you can just imagine how Jewish people felt like an Idumean slash Jewish person uh, leading over the Jewish state, how they felt about the Herods. Well, I read to you, and, and the Pharisees, just the opposite of the Herods. They were theological precisionists. They were the ones that wanted to make sure every little law, and they added about 600 laws to the laws. So you couldn't get as far away from one another this pure, pure version of, of Judaism, at least in their eyes, and then the, 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 the people that had sold out to Rome, the Herodians. I read to you, while the Pharisees were staunchly a religious group that embraced traditional Jewish teachings and opposed all Roman culture, the Herodians, on the other hand, were a group that happily embraced Rome's secularism because it gave them political power. And it seemed to them the best way to secure stability in Israel. Don't Provoke the Romans, work with them, and we will be okay. So, you think these people had anything in common? No. They had one thing in common. They wanted to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. So, anything that brings the Herodians and the Pharisees together must be really interesting. And that is what we are seeing here. So, let's get to the main event. They begin their assault on Jesus, the first of three assaults, by using flattery. A lot of times when we want to try to make a difficult pattern, uh, point or uh, contradict somebody, sometimes we'll use flattery to kind, of, to kind of get them on our side, you know, get their guard down. And that's exactly what is happening here. They tell Jesus that he is truthful and that he truly teaches what they call the way of God. The way of God simply is what, what they believe God wants you to think, the way God wants you to live. You know, maybe we would, we would call it um, God's way of life for us. And they go on to say, teacher, we know that you are true. Listen to this. This is a, kind of a, a compliment. They're flattering him. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion, that Jesus speaks for himself. He speaks with authority, God's authority. He's not, he's not going after opinion polls. And they respect that. For you, 
they say, are not, well, you are not swayed by appearances. In other words, Jesus doesn't care who's who. Jesus doesn't care who the powerful people are, the wealthy people are. Jesus is the same with every single person. He is the Son of God. You don't, you don't care what people think. You don't, you're not affected by appearances, they said, but you truly teach the way of God. So they are complimenting him to try to disarm him and butter him up so that he'll be willing to answer this question. They're going to fire directly at him right now. But, you know, for somebody like us, that might work, right? If somebody could butter us up and we, we get lured into that, not the Son of God. I've told y'all over and over in this gospel, every time that these folks come out to try to tr trap Jesus and trick him, it does not end well for them because the Son of God is not taken in at all by them. So what was their question? It, what was this political question? Here it is. Is it lawful, like God's law? Is it lawful to pay taxes to our wicked overlord Caesar? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then they put it very succinctly. Should we pay them or should we not? That is a trap. That is a trap. Y'all can understand how much of a trap this is in a moment. There is no way if Jesus Christ answers this question directly that he can win. This is one of those catch-22. This is one of those no-win situations. Because if he says, yeah, we should pay the tax, then what are they going to say he is? Oh, he's pro-Roman. He's like the Herodians. He's, he's kind of a sympathizer with the people that, that have their boot on our neck. And half the people in the crowd would say, well, we don't want him to... We don't, we, don't wanna, we don't want him anymore. So they're trying to divide these people. But if he says, no way, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, then what are they going to say? They're going to say he is an outspoken enemy of Rome. They will immediately go to the Romans and tattle on Jesus and say, you know what he's saying? You know, they called him a king. He's when he came into town, he's trying to displace y'all. And he's saying that, that none of us need to, wear, to, to pay taxes. And they're hoping if he says don't pay the taxes that the Romans will just kind of take care of their little Jesus problem without them having to take care of it. That they could arrest him, then maybe they would kill him. Maybe they don't have to deal with, with Jesus anymore. So it's a no win. You get the feeling. As, as he has asked this question, and they have spent so much time coming up with this question. Every syllable of every word is planned to trick him. You get the feeling that Jesus doesn't back away, put his hand on his chin, and for 30 minutes think this through. Now he steps right into it. And uh, it says that at, at the end of this passage that the people were amazed by him. Maybe one of the reasons they were amazed is he was not boxed in at all. And he immediately answered their question. And so Jesus answers. And what does Jesus answer? He begins by doing what he very often does when he is asked a hostile question. He answers a question by asking his own question. It's an incredible rhetorical device that was used by lots of people at that time. So he asks a question of his own. Verse 15, 
we read, but knowing their hypocrisy, hold on to that. He said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him the coin and he said to them, here's the question, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. We need to talk about this coin. I don't know if you've studied like the, the coinage in the Bible. There's a whole lot of money like minting of coins in the Bible, depending on like who's over Israel at a given time. But even at this time, do you remember if you were here, if you weren't, you can listen uh, from two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Um, when Jesus cleansed the temple, when Jesus threw out the money changers, it wasn't that they were doing a disservice. It's that they, were in the, the, they had moved into the court of the Gentiles and were impeding the worship of the Gentiles. Remember Jesus said as he cleaned them out, he said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, for the goyim, for the Gentiles. But you have made it a den of thieves. So the, the temple would only take one kind of coin, and it was this very pure coin that was minted up, up the coast in Tyre, like Tyre and Sidon. And so if you came from Babylon or if you came from Egypt or somewhere and you were a Jew, you had to change your money, all right? And the Jews, they had that coin that only the temple would take. The Jews had all these copper coins that had no image of anybody. They're kind of Jews are very, very sensitive about images. You know, and the second commandment has to do with, with images. And so what was this denarius? All right, the denarius was a Roman coin, and it was in circulation all throughout the Roman Empire. It was favored by the Romans. It was very pure silver. It was worth, it was a tiny little coin. It was worth uh, just one day's wage of an average person at that time. And uh, so the, the, the Roman soldiers, the people that were there serving Rome, if you did any business with them, you, they only wanted to do business in their coinage, in the, in the denarii, all right, denarius. So um, this coin was very special for this reason. It was the only coin that was accepted in paying taxes to Rome. Now, not all the taxes. There were lots of taxes. It was the coin that was accepted to pay the poll tax. Have y'all ever heard of a poll tax? It comes from the word, Greek word polis, which means people. Polis. Um, so a poll tax, basically, some people call it a head tax. It means one person has to pay one part of the tax. Basically, the Roman emperor could proclaim a poll tax over the entire Roman Empire, and everybody would have to pay a denarius just for the privilege of being under the domination of Rome. And every person paid one denarius. All right. It was a tax that the Jews were forced to pay. I mean, you talk about taxation without representation. You can just imagine how much the Jews under the Romans hated having to pay that tax just to live under 
the Romans. So, whose image was on a denarius? And they answered that question, and the answer to the question is Caesar. You know, Caesar, the the emperor of the Roman Empire. And at this time, this would have been Tiberius Caesar, would have had his image. And what do we know about the Caesars? Well, at this time and, and on into the future, they were considered divine. What does that mean? They were considered to be gods and they were to be worshipped. Rut row, the Jewish people aren't interested in that. I think that's what we call good old-fashioned Old Testament idolatry. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And here on the denarius is the image of, quote, God, Tiberius Caesar. And then inscribed on the back of the coin are these words. Because remember, Jesus says, give me the coin, whose image? And then he asks, and whose inscription? is on this coin. He says this in the text. Here's the inscription. Tiberius Caesar, son of God, Augustus, Pontifex Maximus. Which means, son of Tiberius Caesar, the son of God, the wise, the high priest over all. Yeah, the Jews hated this coin. Now, Jesus didn't need one of these coins to to make his point about taxes. They all knew whose image was on the coin. They all knew what that inscription was on the coin because everybody was wondering, should we really have these idolatrous coins and really pay the emperor these taxes? When are we going to get out from under this? He didn't need one of those coins. Why did he ask for one of those coins? Well... Remember it says, because he knew their hypocrisy. Well, he didn't have a coin, number one, because the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to live. He was too poor to have a denarius, unlike his interrogators, evidently. And he especially didn't have a coin that was ultimately idolatrous and he especially especially did not have one of those coins in the temple of the living God and so he asked for one and what do you know what do you know the Pharisees have these coins there's hypocrisy just running and I'm sure the people that are hearing all this go "Uh uh-oh that wasn't cool you know the Pharisees just gave him an idolatrous coin in the temple And they hand it to Jesus. And Jesus asked, he says, bring it to me. Whose inscription's on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. And then Jesus makes this statement. It's a very famous statement. Then render unto Caesar, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And render unto God what belongs to God says the people were amazed at his answer. When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God, he is drawing a sharp distinction between two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, which Caesar is the ultimate power, and the kingdom of God in which Caesar has not one ounce of power. And these kingdoms are distinct. 
These kingdoms are in conflict, and they are in conflict to this day. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And one of those kingdoms, y'all, has got to win in this conflict. Now, what's interesting about this is when you kind of dig a little deeper into this, this denarius, this coin, this was the, the one coin in the entire Roman Empire that was minted. You ready for this? I mean, you know, the old saying, it's good to be king, <laughs> you know, because you get to do what you want to do. You think the Caesars had any wealth as they ruled the entire world? Think they had any power and wealth? The, the, the denarius was minted out of the personal wealth of Caesar. Just let that sink in for a second. He owned personally this entire minting of all of this currency. So when Jesus says, whose image is on this coin? It's Caesar's. And when he says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, he literally means those coins belong to Caesar. And of course, you know, those coins go out and there's upcharges and there's all kind of extortions and there's all kind of money flowing in in that exchange that makes Caesar even more, even more wealthy. Now, today, I do know a few people who really love the idea of increased taxes. Usually they do until they have to pay them. Now, I know that there are people that don't mind paying more taxes, but I think everybody has their limit, don't you? If they get up close to 100%, probably not, probably not liking that anymore. A lot of people don't like taxes. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. People complain about taxes all the time. You know, the only two things that are, that are from age to age are death and taxes, they say. One of my daughters, a few years ago, finally got off my paycheck and got her own job as an occupational therapist. And I had sat down with her and I said, let's just go over this whole, this whole money thing and I'm going to help you know how to see this. Well, well, you know, here's your tithe. Here's your taxes. Evidently, she wasn't listening when I said, here's your taxes. And here's what you need to save for a rainy day fund. Here's what you need to do. So we're going through all of this. And one day she calls me after the blue, and it, out of the blue, and she has just gotten her first, her first paycheck. And y'all, she said with animated frustration, Dad, a third of my paycheck disappeared. <laughs> and so, you know, being a father, I said, well, sweetheart, welcome to the adult world. Or as her sister would say, her sister puts in a verb, I guess that's like a generation, welcome to adulting, <laughs> adulting. Um, I said, you know, what you're telling me is not the worst of it. I, I said, I hate, I hate to ruin your day, but this is just your income tax. You know every time you buy something, they're going to tax you. You know every time there's all these fees when you get a license plate. There's so many hidden taxes, and when, when you die one day, they're going to tax you. Dad, this is wrong. I'm like, well, it's not wrong, but I mean, just need to know how it works, you know. Government's still in power today. The government still has the ability to enforce taxation. Y'all have heard of the IRS, right? Okay, all right, we know about this. Some things never change. 
So how do we relate as believers to the idea of whether it's Roman taxation or federal or state or local or city taxation, it's all of it's taxation. Well, the Bible speaks to this. The Bible says in Romans 13 and other places that basically we are to live under, peaceably live under the authority of government. That governments are put in place or allowed to be in place by God for the, the, to, to keep society from chaos, for the enforcement of laws, uh, all these reasons to, to, uh, to try to have justice rather than, than injustice. Basically, Christians are to be exemplary citizens. Do y'all know that? We are to be exemplary citizens. I remember um, it is the first uh, emperor of the second century um, you know, there's like Titus, uh, I'm, yeah, there, there's, there's Tiberius, there's Titus, there's this other dude, Enzo or something like that. And then you begin the second century and there is uh, an emperor named Trajan. So this, this letter that was written between one of Trajan, the emperor's uh, main people out in the field, whose name was Pliny the Younger, we'd say Pliny Jr., So Pliny the Younger is writing a letter to his friend, the Emperor Trajan, and this is when you are to be killed if you don't worship the Roman Emperor. And Pliny, he must have been close to Trajan because he starts questioning. He says, I'll put it in my terminology, he says, yeah, but but Trajan, you know, here's just the problem with killing all these Christians. They're they're like the best citizens in your entire empire. I mean, these people are not into civil disturbance. These people, when other people put their children out to to die, they pick these children up and they raise them. They are other-centered. I mean, these people are exemplary. Do I have to kill them? Yes, you do, was the answer, by the way, and he did. Uh, But we are to be exemplary citizens. We are to honor those in authority over us while speaking out when we do in respectful ways, when laws are unjust. We are to pray for those in authority over us. It's commanded by the Scriptures. We are to pray for those in this country and on federal, state, local governments that God would give them wisdom to rule well and wisely. You pray for those over us, we need to do that. Um, I know that there is a a time to revolt that has to do when we're not allowed to worship God anymore and when injustice is literally destroying the fabric of society and these are judgment calls all throughout history. But I want you to read, I want you to hear what Romans 13 says about paying taxes. This is Romans 13 verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Listen to this. Pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. Pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. These are commands in Scripture. Pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect, give respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Now, I want you to know, this is not a passage about 
small government and limited taxation than the evils of taxation. It's really interesting when you're studying something to just put it out on the internet to see what people, and there was a think tank that was trying to help us understand the meaning of the, te the, the text. And it was all about limited government and the evils of taxation as if that was the primary meaning of this text. Well, the Bible speaks to taxation. Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. But y'all, that is not the meaning of this passage. It's partially the meaning. That is not the most important thing that is said here. It's not that first part. It's the second part that Jesus said that is the meaning of the text. Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Here's the meaning of the text. Render unto God that which belongs to God. In the Bible, all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, we are taught that everything rightfully belongs to God. Let me say that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If you do your job and do well and make money, it is only because God has your gifts on loan to you during your brief appearance on this earth, all that we have rightfully belongs to God and naked we came into this world and naked we will leave it. We're not taking any of it with us. Y'all do know that, right? We are only stewards of our lives, our relationships, our goods, our, the, our deeds, the way we act for a short time while you and I are on this earth. And we are to render the head tax to Caesar. But what are we to render to God? Render unto God that which belongs to God. We are to render all of who we are to God. We are to render our entire lives to God in service to God. We are to hold back nothing from God. Everything that is us. So there's a question underneath this that is very interesting. And the question underneath it is this. Remember Jesus held up the denarius and he said, whose image is on this coin and whose inscription and they said Caesar's image you know the one who says he's God well here's the question running underneath it whose image is inscribed on you God's image you are beautiful you are, have reasoning ability. You have moral ability. You have the ability to love. You have the ability of, of different ways. And it doesn't matter whether you know Jesus or not. We are made in the likeness and image of God. It's called the imago dei, the image of God. And so we have God's image and we are to render unto him everything because we are made in his image and we were made to glorify the Lord. And Jesus is saying to them, valid question, wrong kingdom. Render unto Caesar, but this is more important. So they are asking beneath the surface of their question, a big political. Remember I told you this is a political question? A huge political question that puts Jesus in peril. From the moment they quit asking this question. And here it is. Whether Jesus is pro-Rome 
And the Jews are going to say, we're not following him. He says we ought to pay our taxes. Or whether Jesus is a revolutionary, an anti-Rome. So what do you think? We know Jesus isn't pro-Rome. Is Jesus a revolutionary? What do you think? Of course Jesus is a revolutionary. There's never been a revolutionary and a revolution like the Son of God. It's amazing. You got to understand a little history to understand why that question was so perilous. So, when Jesus was eight years old, he's 33 at this time when this question is asked in the temple. When Jesus was eight years old, there was this guy named Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean got a group. He was a revolutionary. He got a group of people. They stormed the temple in Jerusalem. You ready for this? Listen carefully. They, he cleansed the temple meaning he drove out all the pagan, all the Roman, all these influences. And you know what he did right after he cleansed the temple? He declared that no Jew should ever again pay the poll tax, that we are done with denariuses. And then he went as far as to declare that Caesar was not king in Israel, that God, that Yahweh was king in Israel. And they crushed him. And every single person with him was crushed to death by the Romans. And yes, history records there were crucifixions by the multitudes. So, Jesus isn't Judas the Galilean. No, he has ridden into the feast of the Passover and been hailed by thousands to be none other than the Messiah of Israel. The forever king who will displace everything and everybody else and reign forever. He was called the king of Israel. The son of David, the king of Israel. So this is far more threatening than Judas the Galilean ever was. And what was the first thing Jesus did when he came into Jerusalem? Remember, he came back into the city that day. He cleansed the temple, just like Judas the Galilean. He threw those money changers out. He threw all those people out. And so the question is, will he now call on Israel not to pay the poll tax with denarius? You see what was underneath this question? Historically, Jesus is a revolutionary, revolutionary, wrong kingdom, wrong kingdom. That's exactly who they wanted him to be, wrong kingdom. Oh, yes, he will directly answer to the highest, most powerful official of the Roman Empire in that entire area in just a few days, whose name was Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate came down from, or up from Caesarea to Jerusalem just because he wanted to make sure things didn't get out of hand in this feast of the Passover. Jesus is standing before the power of Rome itself, 
the only one higher. You know, this is like just a few down the pecking order from Caesar himself. This guy represents Caesar. And he says, so you're a king. Tell me about that. And in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. Listen to this. If my kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I would not be standing here in front of you. I would have won. But my kingdom is not of this world. You need to understand something about these kingdoms in conflict. His kingdom is not so small that it is finally about who's president for four years. His kingdom is not so small that it's finally about who's the Roman emperor for 50 years. The Roman Empire is in the dustbin of history, as we say, as the Egyptians are, as the Assyrians are, as the Babylonians are, as the Greeks are, as the Romans are. I remember reading the introduction to F.F. Bruce's book, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. It's a great book about Paul's journeys and it mixes the theology and the history. And he talked about how powerful the Roman emperor was and he was referring to Nero. And he said this, he said, you know, if you lived in the first century, Paul was just this little Jewish man who, who got in a boat and went out to, to, uh, to, to the Gentile world and started preaching and the entire world called on fire with the grace of God. And the church was spread unbelievably. Fully one-tenth of the Roman Empire was Christian by the middle of the second century. That's amazing. But F.F. F. Bruce said this, who would have been able to imagine a time back then when men would name their sons Paul and their little dogs Nero. <laughs> I love that. I love that. No, Jesus' kingdom is not so small that it's about who the president's going to be or the emperor's going to be. His kingdom is eternal. It is about literally reconciling mankind with a holy God when there is enmity, enmity between God and man. This is for the planet. This is for everyone to be brought back into a reconciliation with God forever. He is the mighty one. He is at the right hand of the Father. But I want you to know, his kingdom doesn't run on might. It runs on love. It's called the upside-down kingdom. It's called the subversive kingdom. And it is so powerful. For a reason, you see. It doesn't run on might. It runs on love. It doesn't run on getting. It runs on giving. It doesn't run on selfish pride. It runs on humility. It basically runs on the values of heaven itself. As in heaven, so on earth. Yes, Jesus is a king who does not have a coin. I love Tim Keller famously called him a king without a quarter years ago. A king without a quarter. Because he was not seeking power in this world. In fact, he lays his life down and loses it 
for us so that our greatest need could be met, that reconciliation with God, bringing us into the kingdom of God, restoring more completely as believers the image of God that has been stamped upon us. And we must render as God's people. We must render to God the things that belong to God. And that simply is all of us. All of us. We need to get used to that idea that God doesn't have a pie chart. That this little slice of pie is for God. This one's for me. This is for this. No, 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 no. The whole pie is, belongs to God. When we kind of let go, when we kind of make the whole pie about God, I mean, look, all these things can be a part of our lives. I'm not saying they're good things. But the whole pie has got to belong to God. We relax when the whole pie belongs to God. And we're not just grabbing on to pieces of the pie. We need to render to God the things that belong to God. And here's the reason why. So we can be revolutionaries. So we can be his revolutionaries who love people in truth, draw people into his kingdom, his kingdom that will win. Because the time is coming when our Messiah King will conquer and will rule over his people in glory and in joy forever. And we will be a part of that through Jesus. So I want to end this sermon by doing something a little crazy. Maybe somebody told you I did this in the first service. I'm going to do it. Like, do I really want to do this again? But I'm going to do it. So, you know, you, you, I, I love the, um, the passage that we read, Revelation 11, 15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. What does this sound like? It sounds like the Hallelujah Chorus. So, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to say the Hallelujah Chorus. And I'm going to get you to say a part of it with me. And I had to stop everything and make everybody join me. Not going to have to do that in the second service. Okay. So I want you to think about Jesus and his kingdom. This is George Friedrich Handel's quotation of Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdoms of this world is become, is become, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He shall reign forever and ever. Okay, this is your part. You got to help me with this, with the death camps. We're going to mess it up. It's okay. All right, ready? King of, no, no, come on, come on. King of kings forever and ever and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Got to do it again. King of kings forever and ever and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're not going to do the ending. We'll just end with and he shall reign forever and ever. Right king. That's the right king. That's the right kingdom. That's what this is about. And who we are under our king. Let's render unto him our whole lives in an answering love as stewards and kingdom revolutionaries. Amen? Yeah, y'all did good, by the way. Better than the first service, but don't tell them, all right? Let's pray. Lord, 
There will be that day when the kingdoms of this world will have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and you will reign forever. We live in the not yet, right? We live in the now and we, we wait for the not yet. But Lord, even now, Jesus has said, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Even now, you are breaking in to this world. Even now, the Christian faith is the largest faith in the entire world. Even now, the church is growing faster than anything else in the entire world, particularly in the southern hemisphere. Even now, you are reigning as king and head of the church. Lord, help us to see the beauty of who you are in your majesty, in your all everything, in your holiness. You are utterly holy. You are reliable. And that out of that glory, you had pity upon us. You had mercy upon us. And Lord, you came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We could never climb into your presence and be accepted by the utter holy omniscient, all-loving God. And so you so loved us that you sent your son, not Augustus. You sent Jesus, your son, the high priest that took his own blood into the heavenly sanctuary and sprinkled it on the mercy seat by actually offering himself up for us, the self-offering for our sin and the punishment that we deserve was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Lord, will we ever get over this? Help us to see that we are in a two-kingdom structure. Help us to enjoy and be wise with the things of this world and order our loves appropriately. But Lord, would you have first place in our lives and give us the joy of our salvation that we might render unto you all of us. And when we are not rendering unto you all of us, that you would cause us to want to do that. And Lord, we pray that through our own loving and, and forgiving and bearing with and truth speaking in love, Lord, that we could be revolutionaries in Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, more and more like Jesus. And Lord, thank you that one day, not only us, but those who will come, we will thoroughly enjoy the praises and the purpose and the joy of your kingdom spatially before your glorious throne and the Lamb. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live with you and for you now. In Jesus' name, amen.